I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today I have the great pleasure of having Jen Say with me, who is the global CMO of Levi Strauss & Company. Jen, hi and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me here in your lovely building. I'm enjoying the office and the decor. I've got the Ramones behind me, the psychedelic furs, the uh, what, the original 501 pair of jeans out there. This is a cool place. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's Levi's, so yeah. long history with music, which is why we have this decor. I think everyone you see here on the wall, which you guys can't see, but is probably a Levi's fan from Bruce Springsteen to the Ramones to... The Pretenders, so that's what this is about. And then you get the, well, today it's cloudy, but um, usually it's a beautiful view of San Francisco and the Bay Bridge. It is. It, indeed it is. And, and I love your office, too. So I did snap some pics. We'll include them when we release your nice. podcast. But I like the football with your name on it, Jen Say. Yes. That was a gift from the 49ers. So, yeah. That, you know, we have Levi Stadium down in Santa Clara, which is where the, the home of the 49ers, as well as many other great events. But they sent me a lovely congratulatory football oh. uh, a couple months ago. <laughs> so that was nice. <laughs> That's awesome. It's fun. I'm a lot to congratulate you for. 20 years at Levi's. Why don't we start there? Tell me a little bit about your current role and why you uh, decided to not only take it on, but stay here for 20 years. Yeah. So I have been in this role, not in this role, in the company for nearly 20 years. So it's about 19 and a half. It'll be 20 in June of next year, 2019. I've had a lot of different jobs here. Uh, My current role is the global CMO at Levi Strauss & Company, and I oversee marketing, which is a pretty broad purview here at Levi's, and I can talk about what that is, but across all four of the brands. So Mm -hmm. Levi's is the biggest brand in the company. It's the flagship brand, but we also own and operate Dockers, and then we have two smaller value denim brands called Levi Strauss Signature and Denizen. And those are both sort of operating in the value channel. We sell them in Walmart and Target, and they're certainly really important in our portfolio. So I oversee all of those and report into the CEO. I've been in a CMO role since the middle of 2013, but it has, has evolved over the last five to six years. It's sort of grown with my team's success, which is kind of cool because the job has not remained static. So when I started, it was just Levi's, um, and I reported into the global brand president who oversaw marketing design and merchandising, among some other things. 
But slowly I collected the other brands as we moved across the last five years. And then within the last couple of months, marketing was elevated in the organization. And now I report directly into our CEO, Chip Berg. So I think it speaks to the importance of marketing in our overall organization as a key business driver. And I think the success that me and my team have driven over the last six years to put this brand back at the center of culture and certainly at the top of our game. Wow, well, that's a lot to uh, be proud of. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. And I want to dig into a couple of these things because, one, you're talking about the elevated role of marketing, which is such an important topic right now to tease out or why you think that that's the case. So your team success that you mentioned, a couple of things you've done there. But also, you had mentioned that you really enjoyed making Levi's hot again. So I want to dive into that too. But before we go there, you have another part of your history that's super fascinating that I definitely want to talk about. So tell me, did you ever think you were going to be a CMO when you first set out in your career? No. Well, I didn't really aspire to be, so I certainly didn't think I would be. I had a very serious career as a young person, a very young person, Mm -hmm. as an athlete, an elite gymnast. So I started in gymnastics when I was about five or six years old. I saw Nadia Komenich in the 1976 Olympics, and I begged my mother. There weren't tons of sports available to young girls at the time. It's not like now where girls can basically play anything. You had sort of gymnastics or ballet, and I did both. And I had an aptitude for it, and I got very serious very quickly, and I think I made my first national team by the time I was 10, uh, which sounds just so remarkably young. I can't even imagine um, having a child that has the drive and just the clarity of mind and and vision and determination to want to do that at 10. Because, I mean, I was training five hours a day, five days a week at 10 years old, and that only escalated from there. In 1986, I was the national champion. I went to the uh, World Championships in 1985 where I had a pretty devastating injury. I broke my femur, but came back to win the USA Championships in 1986. So I had a, a long career, seven or eight years on the national team, and Once I was done with gymnastics, it is sort of a young person's game. I I went on to Stanford University, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I I mean, quite frankly, I was exhausted. I had Mm -hmm. been training uh, 40, 50, 60 hours a week for the last five years. I had suffered from a pretty serious eating disorder, which is not uncommon in the sport, a lot of injuries. And if I'm really honest, it, and I've written about it in a book, which I'll tell you about, it, you know, I was depressed. I was, it was a tough run. It's a tough sport. It's cruel. It's brutal. And so I was really suffering at about 18 or 19 when I went off to college. And so I didn't think about what I wanted to be. I just mm-hmm. wanted to not do gymnastics. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to sort of figure out who I was. And I I think for me, I'd had this career already at 18. On the one hand, I was so excited to walk away from it because it ended in a tough, tough place. And on the other hand, I was really resentful of the fact that I'd been so good at something and I could not build a future on that. Because other athletes that I met when I went to Stanford, which is where I went to college were going to become professional baseball players and professional football players. So they had done the same thing as I had, you know, dedicated their youth Mm. to their sport, but they got to make their career out of it, and I didn't get to do that. So I had to kind of refigure it all out again. So I spent college just trying to figure out what I liked and what I was interested in. And then I graduated, and it was a recession, and I couldn't get a job. And I did some work on movie sets as, like, a production assistant, and then I was a production coordinator on an independent film, and I really thought I wanted to pursue something in that realm. 
but I needed money. I was eating like free hot dogs at happy hours because I had no money. And a friend of a friend knew someone in an advertising agency, and I got offered a job at FCB working on the Levi's business, in fact. Wow. And this is like 94, 1994. And it seemed too good to pass up. And I, I remember very clearly I got $16,000 a year, which sounded like a lot of money at the time. And I remember I got my first check, and I was like, oh, God, how am I going to pay my rent? It didn't seem like that much in the check. Not surprising. But I had a really good time, and I was very tentative to take the job because I did not see myself working in a corporate sort of environment. I saw myself as a writer or somebody that was going to pursue something creative, and so I thought, I'll just do this for now, but I'll, I'll give it up, and I'll get back to what I was really supposed to do. But I had an aptitude for it, and it was fun, and agencies are young people, and that's fun place to kind of be, and I also realized I needed some stability, some financial stability for me to kind of feel okay, so I kept going, and I stayed at FCB for, I don't know, maybe three years before going to The Gap. And then I sort of got to understand apparel and retail and fashion, and I realized I like being on the client side a little more because you kind of get to see these things through. You're not just kind of pitching creative and then letting it go. But that was not an environment that I liked. The culture just it wasn't a good fit for me. Um, and so I left. I was still young enough that I could quit a job and not have a job. That was fine <laughs> back in 1997. Um, I took a little break. Then I worked at a small agency for about a year. And then I ended up at Levi's in 1999. And I've had a bunch of jobs here. I've had mostly marketing, global U.S., but I spent a couple years in strategy advising the president of the brand at the time and writing annual financial plans and strategic business plans. That was an important moment for me to really learn the business. And I spent a few years leading our e-commerce business unit. I've worked across all the brands. So no, I would not have envisioned it because I wouldn't have even thought that I wanted it because I still thought I was going to go pursue this other thing. But what I learned is, like I said, I was good at it and there's tremendous reward in that. It's a lot of fun to work on a brand like this that's so steeped in the culture. We get to do so much cool stuff. I do like the stability. I do like working as part of a team. I like sitting in a room writing, which is sort of what I thought I would do. That's very lonely business. And I need the social aspect of being part of a team. I need the stability of having a job. <laughs> and I, this is a fun job, and I am good at it, and I love it. And I feel like we do good stuff in the world, not just make great marketing, but I feel like we actually make a difference. So I wouldn't have envisioned it, but I'm proud of the work that we do. And what I realized sort of somewhere along the way is I can pursue those other things too. And so I wrote a book in 2008. Well, it came out in 2008. I actually wrote it in 2006. Mm -hmm. It was a memoir about my time spent as a gymnast. I think of it as really a coming-of-age story, like how I found my own voice and was able to walk away from the sport and ultimately with my self-esteem intact. And the joys of it, but also the difficulties and the cruelty of the environment and the challenge in overcoming that when you walk away as an adult. So I had the opportunity to do that and write that book and hone my skills as a writer. And I've continued to write and I've done, I had an op-ed in the New York Times about a year ago on the sport and everything that's unfolded with USA Gymnastics and Larry Nasser. And I continue to write for those kinds of outlets. I've also made two short films of my own. And, and so I pursue my own creative endeavors. And so I get both, right? I get the fun team environment at work and I get to make my short films and write a book and make a documentary which I'm working on now so 
I feel like such an underachiever now. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I like to be very busy, um, much to my husband's um, dismay. I also have four children, so that also keeps you busy. I have two that are two teenagers: one who's 18 and in college at Cal, and one who's 15. He's a sophomore, and then I have two very small children, four and two. Oh my gosh, um, we're busy in my house. Yeah, you're the new poster woman for greatness. Oh not my gosh. greatness. Well, I'm not a big believer in balance. That's, I guess, where it would start. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about that. That's interesting. So you don't believe in balance. What do you believe in? Just get it all in, as much living as you can. Oh. Do it all. Do everything you want to do. More kids, more love, more fun, more work. Like, whatever it is that you love, do all of it as much as you can. That's awesome. For some people, that's just not working. I mean... You know, that's just enjoying and having fun, and that's fine. For some people, that's having a ton of kids. I don't know, whatever it is for you. For me, it's kind of all of the above, so I try to do it all. (laughs) I love it. This book is obviously out, and you mentioned that you kind of got a little bit of pushback in the beginning on the book. Sure. So the book came out in April of 2008, so it was right before the Summer Olympics. And it's a memoir, and it's not sort of meant to be an expose on the sport of gymnastics or the Olympic movement, but it does reveal the darker side of the sport and the Olympic Mm -hmm. movement and talks pretty openly about the emotional, physical, and sexual abuse that happens in the sport, which, of course, we now know, if you've been paying any attention to what's happened with USA Gymnastics in the last two years, we know is... Sort of true. <laughs> Very true. And I didn't write it as an expose. I literally wrote it as a memoir. I like tell my story. People had always found it interesting when I spoke to it. But the community did not accept that this was the truth. And so the criticism was swift and I would say pretty brutal. It was a hard time in my mm-hmm. life because, you know, this community that you've been a part of for a really long time, when they call you a liar and an opportunist and a all of these things very publicly, whether it's on the internet or on the radio when you're you know, doing an NPR show and they call in people you know, literally call you out as this sort of horrible liar. And I think in many cases the, the community had not wrestled with the cruelty of the culture, and I still think has not, or sort mm. of stunned by what has been revealed of late, but they just came after me. And so it was really hard, and I think I did a lot of growing to mm. sort of really go, you know what, I am a reliable narrator of my story. This is true. This is not my truth. This is the truth. And this is what happened. And if you guys can't handle that, then Mm. that's on you. But that was a process to have confidence in my own voice in that way. I'm truly impressed. And first of all, I'm sorry you had to go through that because that's always a... Better for it. You're better (laughs) for it. Absolutely. And kind of goes in line with what we were talking about earlier, which was how women have really come into their own, especially in in your world of marketing now. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, for me, that moment in time was an inflection point for me when my book came out. I had hidden this, I think, will illustrate what we were talking about. I think I grew up in this corporate world. And, you know, Levi's is a relaxed corporate world, but it's corporate nonetheless. (laughs) And I had grown up in a world where there weren't a ton of women in leadership positions. The women that were in leadership positions were trained to sort of, quote unquote, act like men, whatever that means, and <laughs> were very stoic and didn't talk about their kids and their families. And so that was kind of the training I had received. You know, I'm about to turn 50, so I started in the work world in the early 90s. These were the the models, and it never felt quite right to me. You know, I'm reveal it all person. But I had always felt like, as I pursued these creative endeavors outside of work, I needed to conceal them from the people that I worked with, because they would be 
interpreted as me not being really dedicated. And I didn't want to get passed over for a promotion or an opportunity because it was the understanding was, well, Jen's good, but she's really interested in doing this other stuff, so let's not. And so I kept all of it secret. I had made short films that had gone to festivals, and then I wrote this book. And when the book came out, it got quite a bit of press attention, and I ended up being on some of the morning shows like Good Morning America um, and the CBS Early Show. And at that point, you can't really keep it a secret. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, there were articles written in the New York Times. I mean, so I was like, oh, shit, I, I guess now it's out there that I do these other things. And it, it was interesting because it had the exact opposite effect of what I thought. And people sort of then saw me as this person with a voice, with creative and cultural acuity, and just had a whole different level of respect for my ability, which I was confounded by. Because I was like, oh, I thought you guys weren't going to like me for this. And now you <laughs> like me more. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. But it also meant everybody knew everything about me that mm-hmm. had read the book. I mean, it's personal. It's a memoir. And so the days of kind of leaving part of myself out of the office were over. And the world was changing. It was 2008. There were more women in leadership. I was getting older. And I was sort of in a position of leadership. So I could sort of help change that, too. And... It was just sort of a switch for me, and I was like, I'm just going to bring it all. I'm going to be myself, and I'm going to be clear about what I'm pursuing outside of work and that it won't interfere with my work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about my kids, and I'm going to have pictures of them out. And I've been here for almost 20 years. Like I said, I've gotten married here. I've had two kids here. I got divorced. I got, had two more kids and then got married. Like People here know me. They know everything about me, and I think it makes you a strong leader. Like You want to work with people that you like and that mm-hmm. you know about, and I want to know about the people on my team. I want to know who they are as people. Right. So I do think it's changed, and I think women have led that. Because now I think even men are revealing more of who they are and, and themselves at work, and men are more engaged fathers, so they talk about their kids. Like It's a different thing, but... It makes work, I think, much more fun. Mm -hmm. You're not putting on this armor to come into work. You can sort of really be yourself. There's not this line between home and work, which to me makes it much more fun. Clearly, all of the hurdles that you have overcome in the way you felt about things didn't impact your career trajectory at all. I mean, here you are, and you just said earlier that the role of marketing is even elevated. Your team has earned that place. Yeah. Tell me about those wins. Like, How do you think that's evolved over time? We're having an amazing run, driven by the Levi's brand. And the brand is really back on top, and it's experiencing unprecedented growth, both on the top line and the bottom line. And marketing, my team and me, we're recognized as being drivers of that. I think I mean, we've done the hard work. I think about year one of my journey here as a CMO, getting the foundational pieces right. We didn't have a lot of that. Levi's is an interesting brand because everyone has a relationship with it. Everyone thinks they know what Levi's is because everyone has a personal relationship with it. And so we unfortunately had experienced a time where everybody was kind of doing their version of what Levi's is. And in some cases, that was like super edgy. Mm -hmm. In some cases, that was really basic. And we didn't find that common ground that the most people could connect to and relate to. And that was my goal. And I had always loved the brand personally. I mean, I have memories. I tell a story. We we talk about here that everybody has a Levi's story. Ask anyone you know. They will have one. They will (laughs) offer you one. If you say you work for Levi's, everyone, your Uber driver, your, you know, customs agent, they will tell you their Levi's story. And mine that I always tell is in 1986 when I went to the very first Goodwill Games in Moscow. This is before the wall came down. I was told you need to bring 501s. The Russian gymnast will trade you 
leotards, sweats, pins, and the Russians were by far the best in the world at the time. And so I went to Macy's at the Cherry Hill Mall, <laughs> and my mom and I bought 10 pairs of 501s in very tiny sizes, and I took them with me and I traded them. And so I've loved this brand for a very long time. And the reason that was a value to these Russian gymnasts was Levi's is the symbol of democracy and inclusion and optimism and freedom. That's that beacon of that in the world, which is kind of amazing. I don't think I thought about it that way at the time at 16 or however old I was. But I've loved the brand for a very long time. To be able to work on this brand and make it great again is an honor. And I've always felt what's great about this brand, even when it was suffering over the last 18 years or so. But I wanted to have the chance to bring that greatness to more people. And so we did the hard work of kind of setting the foundation. What's all this sort of boring stuff, right? The brand value proposition. (laughs) What's our campaign platform? What's our disciplined media strategy that drives an ROI? What's our retail concept? Because I own that with as the CMO as well. You know, what's our store concept that's going to ease the consumer journey and the path to purchase and that brings the brand to life? What's our process? How do we brief? Who are our agency partners? All those sort of basic things. And I would say in 2014 and 2015, that was the hard work of getting the the basics right. And then we were able to like really start to add some gas, I would say. (laughs) And I think one of the things we've done incredibly well is just PR engagement and activation. I mean, we just kill it in that area with a real strong focus on music, the artists we work with, the way we activate at music festivals. It has put this brand just at the center of the story and the center of culture with young people in a really relatable way. So not sort of chasing the edge of cool, but being right there at the center of it with young people. But we've managed to appeal to young and old alike. And that's what's the beauty. So super proud of what we've been able to accomplish. And I think because of this combination of kind of art and science and kind of really relevant creatives that struck a chord with people and really disciplined ROI-oriented marketing, it's fully recognized by the board and the senior leaders of the company, which includes me at this point, that marketing is a key driver of our success and it's time to elevate it in the organization. I'm glad you mentioned the financial backbone and the ROI. And as you have been sharing your evolution here, I couldn't help but think that one, all of your personal experience is reflected in this ability to connect at all these different mediums, particularly connection with music. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. But also, you had mentioned earlier that you spent a couple of years writing financial plans. And everybody always talks about marketing as not always having the financial acumen chops that is necessary. So like, how do you think those things contributed to this success? Yeah, I mean, I tell the people in, in my organization, the sort of high potential leaders, you need to do some work outside of marketing. Mm-hmm. You need to really understand the business. Not just say you understand it. You need mm-hmm. to really understand what are the key levers that drive the business. You don't want to be at a table with presidents and GMs who are on the front line driving the business and not be able to understand and empathize with what they're talking about. You don't want to be sitting there going, oh, it's great, it's going to drive equity in the long term. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would laugh myself out of the room if I did that. And so having spent time in strategy as key advisor to the president, and like I said, one of the key responsibilities there is writing the annual financial plan along with my finance partner and then the strategic business plan, which is more of a three- to five-year plan. But then running e-commerce and literally being in the trenches, owning the numbers every single day, 
there's no other way to understand what it means to own a PL and drive the business. And so it makes you more empathetic to your partners. It makes you more understanding of how do I create marketing that will truly drive the business, sustain the brand in the long term, drive the business in the short and long term. I just I don't think you can get there if you only spend time in marketing. I really, I really right. don't. I would never recommend a replacement for myself that had only spent time in traditional brand marketing. I just, I don't think they're as good. You obviously are a go-getter, and you educated yourself with not only the passions you have within the business, doing different things, but outside the business, completely well-rounded. But how do you help young people achieve that? Yeah. Well, I think if you're good at what you do, part of what you're going to need to be good at is identifying top talent. I look back on a conversation I had very early on with the man that actually hired me at FCB, and I was like six months in, and he always would pull me into his office, and I don't even know what he, he was probably not that senior, but he seemed really senior to me, (laughs) and he would always ask me, like, what do you think of this work, this concept, or this ad, and I was like, why are you always asking me this stuff? I don't understand. I don't know anything. I need to go manage the budget on my spreadsheet (laughs) over there, and he said, Jen, if you saw 10 six-year-olds do a cartwheel, could you tell which one had potential? And I was like, of course I could tell which one had potential. Um, And he said, well, that's me. I can tell. Which I was like, well, that makes total sense to me. I get that. I understand that. I didn't know how that could have been visible, but that was a good analogy. And so I think that we need to do that as leaders as well. And that doesn't mean that people that aren't high potential don't have a role. You manage and develop talent differently for different people. Sometimes you need people to do that job and be engaged by this job for the rest of, you know, not their lives. That's a long time. But like for a long time, like they may not run the company, but they're really good. And so how do you keep them engaged and interested and feeling rewarded in that particular job? But then for people that are hungry and ambitious, how do you fuel that and how do you rotate them quickly and how do you give them exposure and give them these new experiences? Because one of the reasons I've stayed so long is I've had a new experience every two to three years. Mm -hmm. And even though I've been in this job seemingly for, you know, six years, like I said, it's changed every year or two. So Mm -hmm. I get bored fast. I don't want to do the same thing for 10 years. And so being able to identify those people. Now, Mm -hmm. there are some people that get bored fast that aren't maybe that good. (laughs) So that's a whole different scenario. Um, But I think being able to identify those really high potential people that have this unique ability and cultural acuity and a strong creative sensibility but are very create uh, strategic and analytical it's a that's a unicorn you know yeah and then giving them exposure and opportunity and explaining to them that because I think a lot of young people they sort of see this career path and they think you just move up in this linear fashion and I always advise people to be very open to what the next step is it's not going to be what you think necessarily because mm-hmm. mine has not been I've gone sideways and all kinds of ways into jobs that I didn't ever think I would do and they've been the most illuminating right in a sense and I try to help facilitate that so they don't have to figure it out all themselves but I push them into areas where I think it might be helpful <laughs> and I'm clear on who my top sort of 10 to 15 percent high potentials are at every level and mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time thinking about their development and where they could go next and rotating them as quickly as possible because I think with people like that you can accelerate their learning with the right rotations That's fascinating. And tell me a little bit about how you collaborate with your peers. 
I feel like most of my time is spent in this, like communicating, over-communicating, say it again, say it again. Your job is not to sort of have the right answer, but to get the work done, and that involves an army of people. And so I do spend a lot of time. I put in the work. I come prepared. I meet face-to-face, not too much on email. I spend time with them to build trust. You meet before the big meeting, so you have alignment beforehand. But the key piece of it is building trust. You know, I'm not gaming the system when I meet before. It's to build that trust. (laughs) And you talk openly about the challenges and you argue when you need to argue. And then you come prepared and know your shit and (laughs) build a reputation as an enterprise leader and not just somebody who wants to make cool ads. And I think you end up having really good working relationships with your other senior leaders in the company and you do better work together. Great. Wonderful. And on that note, just real quickly, you had mentioned also that you have a hand in retail design. So how do you work with your merchandising partners? Oh, well, so our head of design and merch is my most important partner in the whole building. And she and I talk every day on the way into work and probably every day on the way home. It's interesting. People talk a lot about decision rights. When it comes to she knows what her rights are. I know what mine are. But I don't really like to make a move without her feeling good about it because we're both stewards for the brand. And Mm -hmm. we both have a common vision, but we execute it through different means. So that's the most important working relationship I have. I think if you have a working relationship that you constantly define by who has decision rights, you probably have a problem. If you have a working relationship where you trust each other and you want to know what the other thinks, you probably have a pretty good one. And I've had both kinds. So I feel very lucky and I think it's definitely part of our success right now as a brand that she and I work so well together and trust each other. Uh, we don't always agree and that's fine too. But anyway, we I also do oversee um, retail designer as we call it brand environment. And so anything basically in four walls sits within my team. So we design wholesale environments, retail environments, outlet environments, um, as well as all the content for e-com. So then my partnership with those operating those stores is really important in terms mm-hmm. of how, retail operations, how do you bring this to life. And look, there's a lot. You put a lot of time and energy. As you move up in the organization, more and more time goes into managing your team and managing your key relationships. That's probably 70% of my time. Right. Makes right. a lot of sense. Yeah. Before I ask you my last one, let okay. me turn it over to you. Any specific tip you want to offer somebody out there um, that you think can help them in their career? I think the one thing is, like, don't be so set on what your path is and your next step. Be really open. <laughs> and, and I would say that is true in life, not just mm-hmm. your career. Like, just be open because life takes you really interesting places. And I was at a really, like, when I took the job and strategy that I described, I was in a hard place here. And I felt like I wanted this one job and I wasn't getting it. And no one would give it to me. I was really mad. And I almost walked away. And somebody said, why don't you come do this? And it was a lateral move. And everybody's like, why would she go do that? And it was terrifying. I mean, I was building models. I didn't know how to. I was Googling a lot every night to figure out how to do it. The first three months were terrifying. And then I was like, oh, this isn't that hard. I can do this. From there, I accelerated on that upward path so much more quickly because I just learned invaluable skills. And so just be really open to a different path and a different learning trajectory. I do think of 2008 and having written that book and having this sort of aha moment where I go, okay, I can bring more of myself to work. I I don't think if that had happened, I would be where I am. I really think that was like a critical moment. And so, you know, the other piece of advice, I I just say bring your whole self to work because if you can't do that, you don't probably want to work there anyway because you're going to be kind of miserable. Mm -hmm. Show who you are. Show your vulnerability. Show when you're not sure. Say, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. Let's talk about it. Like, you don't always have to have the answer. Your job is to help guide a team to get to the answer. And guess what? No one wants to work for someone who thinks they know everything because that person's an asshole (laughs) Um, and so 
it's a hard one and it's not for everyone. But, you know, for me, I would say that's absolutely an inflection point in my career here at Levi's, but more broadly and in my life to just be a happier, much happier person. Well, good advice. Okay, so my last question, if you weren't a CMO, and this is kind of a tricky one for you because there's like 18 things you already are doing, but if you weren't a CMO, you could do anything in the world right now, money, talent, no object, what would you do? I would be a filmmaker, a writer and a filmmaker, probably a screenwriter and a filmmaker. Yeah. Okay. In 2003, I thought I was still not sure about this whole marketing thing, and I applied <laughs> to film school as a screenwriter, and I got in to Columbia and didn't end up going. I had two small children at the time, but that's been a lifelong dream and passion. And so I do still write, and I am currently engaged in a filmmaking endeavor, but I would do that full time. Well, I can't wait to see your film. When's it coming out? Can't say. It's a documentary, and it's pertinent to much of the content I've talked about in my life and sort of the Olympic movement and the culture and gymnastics in particular. Well, I will wait patiently until you tell me. It'll be a little while. It'll be a little while. Okay, all right. Well, we'll we'll keep our eyes open for it. Uh, Well, Jen, it's been a real pleasure to have you with me today. Thank you so much for sharing so much great information. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.